Paul, starting from the law, earning his way into favor with Christ, was his whole life up until Jesus. Always trying to gain favor by being better, by being more obedient to the law, and every day feeling a little superior to those around him. And of course, he counts that all as refuse, as dung. He puts that behind him now that he's come to Christ because he realizes um, he was never going to attain to the perfection needed to have that fellowship with God. He knew that that was a a dead-end road, a cul-de-sac, that was just going to send you back to where you started. And so his mission, and in the way he writes and the way he ministered, was always to get the people from that, that trying to do enough to gain favor with God, to understanding your position is now complete in Christ. There's nothing to earn. There's nothing to gain. Doing better isn't going to make you and get you a better seat in heaven. It's, it's there. You're positionally as good as Jesus Christ was and is. And so he spends most of Romans 1 through 11 getting us to that place. It was never meant for us to argue and to debate the tiny points throughout. It was meant to get us step by step to this moment here in chapter 12. Because I don't want you, Paul would say, to do the things that are pleasing to God to gain favor, but because you have favor. That's always the point. I try to emphasize that as often as I can, knowing that that is most of the New Testament and why it's written is to get people to understand it's not to gain favor, but because you have favor. I want my kids to act appropriately, not to become or stay a Dirks, but because they are a Dirks because they represent our family, you know. But they're never going to lose that status. They're never, we're never going to disown them because they weren't operating correctly as far as my qualifications go. And the likewise for our Father in heaven, he's given us positionally sonship or daughtership in his family. That's there. That's done. It's secure. Paul wants us to get that into the depths of our heart to understand before we ever get to the thought of, now what do I do after that? Because of that. And so he starts off this chapter 12 with verse 1 I beseech you, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. What I'm about to tell you, Paul says, okay, I'm going back to the seat now. This is too weird. What I want you to understand and what I want you to do, I want you to behave properly and present yourselves as sacrifices, not not as the sacrifice, but because you have an example of a sacrifice in your Savior, Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for your sins. Now, I want you to sacrifice your life because it's reasonable service. Jesus, I know what you've done for me. It's only reasonable that I would reciprocate, do the same for you. And of course, he doesn't ask us to go to the cross. He doesn't ask us to die. There are gods and there are religions in the world that do ask their followers to die for him. He's not asked us to do that. He asks us to die to ourselves, not physically. I don't want you to seek after your own. I want you to seek after others. And that's his heart on the matter. He says, I'm begging you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. What Paul tells us in 1 through 11 is what Christ has done for us. And he, he spends that much time so that we get it into our hearts, not just in our heads. And there is a problem with us sometimes. We do get it in our heads and not in our hearts. We understand it. We could probably even quote it to other people and explain it to other people. You know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and there's nothing you can do to, 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 to gain any more favor than that. We could say that, but do we really believe it and understand it and live it? And so he spends 11 chapters trying to get that into the Romans' heart and to our hearts as he's written to us. There's a sad story. I don't wanna, I'm going to share it. I hope it doesn't bum me out too much, but it's a beautiful story at the same time. Um, six-year-old girl um, whose mom was terminally ill uh, and her little brother, the mom's in the hospital and she's on her way to die and some reason or other they're by the railroad tracks and she pushes her little brother out of the way, out of the way of the train that's coming along and the train comes along and she doesn't move. She stands in the path of the train and the reason she did it, she didn't actually perish, thank goodness, 
But the reason she stood there is she wanted to die because she wanted to greet her mom in heaven. She wanted to beat her mom there because she was terminally ill. Her mom had reiterated over and over again, bedside, that that was the hardest part about this. Not the sickness, not the pain, not the suffering, but the fact that she was going to be separated from this little girl and didn't want to leave her alone down here. That was her heart, and any mother would understand that feeling. Of course you don't want to leave. You care less about yourself. You're worried about the child. And so the child, at the age of six, had the right heart and understanding, misguided. Thank goodness she didn't follow through but had the right heart. I want to greet mommy there. Wouldn't that change everything for the mom? As sad, as heartbreaking as it would be to hear that your daughter died on the railroad tracks going to meet you, but no longer are you fearing leaving, but you can't wait to get there now. My daughter's waiting for me. Terrible story. I mean, I'm so glad that she didn't get hurt, but you get the principle and the idea behind it. That's the heart of Christ. He so much loves us and so much cared for us that he went ahead of us and prepared a place for us. And my love for him should be so strong that I can't wait to get there, to be there with him. And Paul spends 11 chapters trying to get us to fall in love and to make sure we are in love with this Savior, not just following it like the Jews would do for the law. Jesus isn't another law. He's not another set of rules. It's not another uh, contractual agreement between two parties. He's supposed to be the love of our life because we are the love of his life. And so he's gone on ahead of us to prepare a place for us, and soon we will all be there, and that's exciting. I'm excited to go. I'm excited to die. I'm looking forward to it. That's so weird for a lot of people. When I express that, I don't express it nearly as much as I used to because of the funny looks you get from people all the time. And I understand they don't understand what I'm saying because they don't, well... It's not that they don't feel that way, but they're, and they're, they, I'll go when God wants me to go. And that's true. But I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, I love my family. I don't want to leave them. I love my kids. I love my wife. And, and, I, and, I, and I hope I bury them all, to be honest with you, because I don't want them to have to go through the pain of losing somebody. But I'm excited to get there. I'm looking forward to it. I want to be in heaven And that's some of the comfort that God gives us. All those who have died before us, that have gone on before us, they're waiting there for you. So that kind of changes your perspective. Gives you a little looser grip on this world and your own life and a little more eh, ready to go anytime. And looking forward to heaven and not so fearful of death. And so Paul spends 11 chapters trying to get us to understand that your love of your life is waiting for you in heaven and he's prepared a place for you. Now, until you get there, knowing that love, knowing that grace, knowing that mercy that he's explained to us for 11 chapters, knowing all of that, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He wants them to live a holy life. He wants them to look like their dad, look like their brother. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Two types of people, two types of uh, things you could be here. You could even be, you can be conformed to this world, which the world is desperately trying to conform you, trying to conform me, trying to conform our children to be like it. Or I can be a transformer where I'm transforming this world. One of the commentators I was reading before as I was studying for this says you're either a thermometer or you're a thermostat in this world. You're either constantly trying to check the temperature of the political climate or what's cool, what's not, what's the in style or whatever, and you're trying to match up with that, trying to be hot or cold. The problem is by the time you get there, it's already moved on to another temperature. You can never catch up. The church does that today. You can see it happening all over. The new fast, exciting churches with the new lights and the new shows and the new whatever because they want to be cutting edge. They want to be on edge. But the time they catch up with the world, the world's already moved on and they look like dorks because they're trying to match something 
that's already the world has moved on from and the world looks at them and says, that was so yesterday. The church is so last year. That's what happens. Instead of being a thermostat where we, we change the temperature, we affect those around us. That's what we're called to do as Christians. And Paul begs him, I want you not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Transform. You be transformed into the image of Christ, and by, by so doing, you transform those around us. I think there's one, uh, one artist that I could see and would say with confidence, would be Toby Mac, leads and doesn't follow. He doesn't find out that auto-tune in his music is cool because it's already been done by 12 other albums and artists in the, in the secular culture. He leads the way, and they copy him. He just does what God puts on his heart, and all of a sudden the world says, hey, that's, that's kind of new and different. And they copy him. It's rare. And God wants us to be like that, not like Toby Mac, but like Jesus. Jesus was so unusual for his day. At a time when everybody was trying to become more religious, to become more acceptable, to wear finer clothes, to have the right kinds of sacrifice, to get the best seat in the temple, he's out on a hillside, to an outside church and gathering 5,000 people out there. That's just the men, you know. He started potlucks when potlucks weren't cool, you know. We often pray for our potlucks sometimes. Five loaves and two fish. There's a lot of people here today, I hope. And it does, doesn't it? Every time there's always enough food. Hardly a comparable example, but Jesus was... No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what's, what's needful. I want to change the temperature. I don't want to be a thermometer. I want to be a thermostat. And Jesus, being God, come in the flesh, knew exactly what they needed. And I'm going to give it to them. And I'm going to be that. I'm going to be full of grace and mercy because it doesn't exist where it's supposed to. So I'll be grace and mercy. I'm going to teach and believe God's word, and not try to twist it, but accept it as face value and teach it just as it says. Because God's word is perfect. Not one jot or tittle shall be removed from it, he said. It's perfect. In a day when they were always trying to figure out, well, what did God really mean when he said that? They would write books and volumes, try to explain away the truth and the simplicity of what God wrote. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed. He didn't want to see that happen to the church. Paul was desperately begging for the church to be transformed and not conformed. And it starts by the renewing of your mind. You do. You've got to change your mind on the matter. And the only way you do that is by reading God's Word. That's where He changes our minds. That's the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God never changes. It's always truth. I may always line up with truth, but I'll find that out when I put myself against the measuring stick of God's Word, and I find out that I don't line up, and I change. One of the neatest things, one of the neatest building tools is a string and a heavy weight. It's a plumb line. It tells you everything you need to know about how your building's going to stand. You hold that plumb line up to it, and you let that weight dangle, and because of gravity, it folds true. It's always perfect. And you hold it up next to that brick wall that someone just put up a few courses on. You say, okay, it's going like this. You don't know what I'm talking about. It goes like this. You hold your plumb line up. It's straight down. That wall's going to tear it down and rebuild it till it's right where it's supposed to be. Because the gravity's pulling it this way. It needs to be right on top of each other. That's what God's word is for me. It should be for us. It should be that plumb line that we look at, we gauge ourselves on. I find myself, I'm leaning a little right. It's a lot of leaning right right now. I was a little hesitant about putting the flag up, not because I'm not patriotic, because I didn't want it to be misunderstood. So we're going to put a scripture below it that says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So we understand that. And above it, it's going to say one nation under God. The point is, our country is what it is because of God, not because we don't worship the flag. I didn't want anybody to get, I just haven't got enough time to put my <laughs> scripture up there. But that's what it's going to say one of these days. I have good intentions. As I look at the plumb line of God's word, am I leaning right? Do I hate the poor? Have I become resentful of them? Or am I leaning left away from the plumb line? Interesting. God's word. 
That's what keeps me straight, gives me plumb, tells me where I need to go. I don't change it. You can push a plumb line all you want, but it's always going to go back to where it's supposed to be. No matter how many times you push it to make it go towards you, to make it match up to you, it's not true. It's a lie. It's false. You've got to pull it back to where it can hang free by itself, and then you can tell and you examine it. It's a wonderful tool. God's word is that for me. It should be for us, all of us. And Paul wants it to be that. Prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Some people think there are three wills of God. There's this good will, and there's the acceptable will, and then there's that perfect will. And you could be in one of three categories. I don't think so. I think God has one will. I think it's a good will. That's why Jesus says, don't call me good. No one is good but God. In other words, it's perfect. Good is perfect. Acceptable. God doesn't accept anything less than perfection. There's not three different grades of will. I'm close to God's will. I'm closer to God's will. Now I'm at God's will. No, it's all one will. And Paul's just using that beautiful Jewish poetry and building. I want you to find that good, acceptable, perfect will of God. He's trying to bring it to a crescendo there. And he goes on, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Because once you realize what you're supposed to do back here in 1 through 2, those two verses, giving your reasonable service, and you actually begin to transform and get your mind changed. And as God has given me grace, be careful that you don't think more highly than you ought to think of yourself. The office and the calling upon our lives is holy and is high, but the person isn't that fulfills that office. See, Moses was meek and humble and lowly, not qualified, slow to speak, needed his brother to speak for him, and yet his calling and his position was very high. That's the case for all of us. And it's just important to keep that perspective because once you figure out that God's putting you in a place of ministry, remember that it's not you, it's the position that's high. Franklin Graham has a very high calling in his life, but Franklin Graham is saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, yet put into a position of a high calling. And it's important to keep that thought. That's why Billy Graham was able to stay the way he was throughout all of his ministry. He never thought of himself above falling into sin. He always put safeguards in his life to keep himself from falling because he knew, I'm just a man. But the calling I'm called to is very high. All of us have that. We're all called to a very high calling. But Paul here writes, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. What you have, you have by grace. What you have, you have by faith. And it's been given. It's not to beat us down. It's not to make us feel lowly. We don't have to beat ourselves up. He says, just be careful that you don't get high and lofty in your own mind. And we can do that sometimes. I can do that sometimes. I have to catch myself and guard myself when I begin to think about myself and not about the calling that God's placed on our lives, my life. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. In other words... Not that we need other words. These are perfectly clear. Paul uses the body as an example. Every one of them is important. I would definitely notice if my right hand wasn't there. I'd be able to walk and see and smell and hear and do all the things I could do, but I'd definitely notice if my right hand wasn't there anymore. It'd be hard not to focus on that and pay attention. All of a sudden, it, now that it's gone, becomes very, very important to me. We used to do that as kids. We'd make each other choose which would you rather lose, your left pinky or your left toe? Your left, you know, pinky toe. I don't know why those were the two options, but that was it. And then we progressively get worse. It's just fun for guys, I guess. We'd sit around and sit in the fields and say, would you rather use your eyes or ears? Or ears, I think. I want to see. And we go through that. Well, as you think about it, none of them were good choices. I don't want to lose any of them. In fact, we started, you, you could see as a conversation, when you put, all of a sudden you find yourself sitting like this, getting all curled up in a ball because they're going to keep everything, you know? We'd freak ourselves out. 
No one in the body of Christ is less important or more important. They're all absolutely necessary. Now, you may not think that as you look at a perfectly functioning body. You think, well, that's pretty important over there. Until that other part's gone. You know? Then you realize how important that part that didn't get the spotlight, maybe, or you didn't look at or was constantly hidden. But boy, when they're gone, you notice it. Mike's not allowed to leave, and Debbie can't leave anymore. Because who's going to do the stuff they do? You know? And everybody else out there. All the folks that help clean. All the folks that do worship. I mean, we noticed Lindsay was gone tonight. You know, she's in Florida. How dare she? You know? But you notice it. And so on. And so Paul says, don't think highly, more highly, because God's given each a measure of grace, each a measure of faith, and you operate in the calling that you be given and don't think of yourself higher than another member of the body because they're all vital to the body of Christ. It's Christ's body. How could you look at Jesus and say, well, it wouldn't matter if you really had a left leg. or if you, you know, the idea is Jesus is the head and literally we are, not literally, figuratively, we are the body. We're connected to him. He's our brain. He's our nervous system. He tells us what to do, where to go, how to walk, how to behave. He's everything, and we're simply his body, but we're attached to him. And wherever the head is, that's where the body is. It's really important to get us to that place to understand that. And the body is all of us here. And every Christian out there, not just at Calvary. Calvary's one limb, I guess. And so Paul warns them, don't think of yourself. Be careful about how you look at each other. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. That's the only time in the Bible gifts are spoken of. And you'll challenge me, what about Corinthians and what about Ephesians? Well, those are different, and I'll explain that later. But this is where gifts are listed. If prophecy, prophecy is not necessarily uh, Elijah or Isaiah or any of those, it's um, there, are, there is that. Don't get me wrong. Someone may say, I have a prophecy for the church or for you individually. You may want to share it. And then you listen. And if it happens, then you know they're a true prophet. And if it doesn't, you know they're a false prophet. You can throw rocks at them afterwards. The prophecy he's talking about here, though, is more like when you're explaining or teaching or expounding kind of thing. You're declaring the glories of God is what a prophet does. They declare the glories of God. And so... Um, you're explaining those things or, or giving a, a full example of that. So there's prophets. But what you do, you do by faith. And so if you're going to prophesy, you prophesy by faith. Let them do it. Don't forget, you fall into one of these categories. You have one of these gifts. Everybody does. Nobody's saved and born again without a gift. You all have them. We just, whatever it is, you need to be using it. So prophecy is the first one here. The second one is, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. So, how much faith you've been given, do it accordingly. Some people have a lot of faith. Some people don't have a lot of faith. Everybody's given a measure of faith, and you're supposed to use your gift in proportion to your faith. As much as you believe God, as much as you trust God, go ahead and, and do that. I remember the first time I was asked to teach. I was very excited I've always wanted to teach. I've always wanted to share. I was cleaning toilets, setting up chairs for years. And finally, he says, I'm going on vacation. Can you fill in next Wednesday? Gave me a Wednesday. You, know. you bet. Well, I was all ready. Until you start preparing, you start thinking about what you're about to do. Then you get really nervous because I hate speech and I hate standing in front of people. I don't like teaching. seemed like a good idea to want it until you have it. And I got in front of him. And I'm looking at everybody, and I changed my message probably seven times that week or week and a half or however long he gave me to study and wrote it down seven different ways, and it was all jumbled in my head. All seven Bible studies were there in my head, and I was trying to, oh, my goodness. And you start going really well. As soon as you open your mouth, it goes great, and then you start to sweat because you start to forget where your train of thought's going, what the next note is, and that doesn't make sense. That's with message number four. That's not with seven. And you start getting worried. And it starts to show, and you start to fumble through your words. And you get hot, and you can tell everybody looking at you going, you're not the pastor, are you? You know, no, I'm not the pastor. I thought I was going to be tonight, but I'm not. And all you want to do is be done. 
That was my first experience. I just wanted to be done. I just wanted to go home. I wanted to go away. I wanted to stop. I wanted to say, let's have a prayer night instead. But I finished it. And then you had, then you had the people come up back next to you. That was great. You did a really nice job, J.D. That must have been tough for you. Yeah. It was. Thanks for sharing it in such a way that I know you could see it on my face, you know. You may as well have said, better luck next time, you know, kind of thing. It was horrible. But I did it. That's what my pastor said afterwards. I said, oh, that was a disaster. Don't ever ask me to do that again. I'm so sorry. You should have asked him. You know, I went through the whole thing with him when he got back. He goes, that's not what I heard. Well, they're just being nice. I appreciate that, though. He goes, no, you did it. You did it. I got to thinking, well, I did do it, didn't I? You know, I actually followed through. It was a disaster. It was a train wreck. Don't get me wrong. They're, they were all crazy. It was a disaster. God's word went out, and that's the only good thing. We definitely read through a chapter. But it was a disaster as far as the commentating went. It was a disaster. But he says, you know what? You did it. And you know what I did? It did it according to the measure of the faith that I had at that time. And it's increased. And I've seen God fulfill his promises and come through. And it gets easier to trust him. And I step up there sometimes, not knowing exactly what I'm going to say, but I know that it's the Holy Spirit that teaches anyway. And I don't rely on that. I do my due diligence. I do my study. I show myself approved by studying God's word. But to be honest with you, when I get up, sometimes I don't know exactly how it's going to come out. That's why first service and second service are different sometimes. Because I've walked with him long enough and I've done this long enough that I know that he's going to make up my lack. And it's big. My lack is big. See, I'm the same person I was that first Wednesday night. I'm no different. But because I'm getting out of the way more and more as I teach, he's able to do more and more with it, you see. So my faith increases, I decrease, and he increases. That's how it's supposed to work. And so he says, do it according to your faith. Just do it. I don't know if I can share the gospel with somebody. Just tell somebody. And, and fumble your way through it. Listen to Greg Glory's testimony on the first time he shared the gospel with someone at the beach. Greg Glory. He said he had the four spiritual laws. And he walked up to somebody and he says, do you know where you'd go today if you were to die? Would you go to heaven or hell? He said it was horrible. And the guy says, no, I don't. And he says, and he read it, page one. And he read through this track. And by the time he's done, he knew it was a disaster. And the guy says, I want to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. What? I want to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me? Sure. And he didn't know what to do next, you know. It's a great testimony. Because he did it. He just did it. Now look. See, Greg's no different than that first time he did it on the beach. He's no better. Have you ever listened to their messages? No offense. But I've heard a lot better. They're just simple, and they're just loud, and they have more. And here they come, flooding out of the stadium, coming up to receive Christ with tears rolling down their face. And these guys know better. I mean, what I mean is, Greg Laurie, Franklin Graham, Billy Graham, all know ain't nothing to do with me. It's just the Word of God. It's just the Gospel. It's just the Holy Spirit bringing them. I just stood up here and did it. According to your faith, guys, every one of us has a gift. Use it according to the faith, the faith that you have. God brings the increase. So he says, prophesy in proportion to your faith. Or ministry. What's the difference? Well, ministry is the actual doing of what was being taught. Prophecy is like a, a sharing and an expounding and, and, you know, and, and, and talking about the glories of God. Ministry is doing it, showing it. You don't have to use your words. It's visibly seen. Dorcas being a great example. We don't know much about Dorcas except that she made a lot of clothes for people sewing. And when she was sick and dying, they called for Peter. But they didn't call for Peter for anybody else that was dying. They just called for her. That's the only story we have. Dorcas is dying. Who's Dorcas? She made all the clothes for everybody. She ministered. She's our example of fleshing out what we've been taught and seen. She actually was doing the work 
of the ministry. She was a minister. And so call somebody. We can't live without this woman. This part of the body's dying. And, and, but she wasn't preaching. She wasn't evangelizing. She wasn't prophesying. She was just making clothes for the poor. Go get Peter, you know. Is that your ministry? Is that your calling? Is that your gift that you have that God's given you to minister, to show and flesh out Christ? Very important. If you do have that gift, he says, let us use it in our ministering. If you've been given that gift of ministry, use it in your gift of ministering. He who teaches in teaching, that's what I do. That's my gift. I know that. I'm called to teach. I'm called to read the Word of God, give a sense of the meaning. Sometimes a little too much sense of the meaning and not enough Word of God, but I'm working on that. But I want to give it and teach it. I'm going to do that according to faith, or by faith. He who exhorts in exhortation. We need to be exhorted. We talked a little bit about that on Sunday. And exhortation is a little rough to hear sometimes. Think about the guys in the boat. I was exhorted this week, but I'll tell you that in a minute guys in the boat. They're going across. Jesus says, we're going to go to the other side of the Galilee Sea. We're going to get over there. Falls asleep. The wind and the waves come up. They think they're going to die. They call to Jesus. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Do something about this. Paraphrase, of course. He says, you have little faith. That's an exhortation right there. You have little faith. In other words, what did I tell you we were going to? I told you we were going to go over the sea. I didn't tell you we were going to go under the sea. I said we're going over the sea. Faith would believe me that I said we're going to go over the sea. Your doubt, your fears, your little faith tells you that we're going to go under the sea. You think we're going to sink. It's not going to happen. You have little faith. That's exhortation. I had that same feeling. As soon as I put out that wonderful thing, hey, we're going to get that land. We're going to go ahead and try purchasing it. See what happens. Let's put it this way. Certain circumstances came up that said that's about the dumbest thing you could ever do. I prayed about it. I really thought God spoke to all the board and all of us. Really thought, we're going to really do this and we're just going to see what God does here. And we're just excited by faith. <laughs> and I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but economically, it probably wouldn't be a real good idea right now. You know? And as I struggle with that, saying, I must not have heard God. It must have been silly. It must have been, God, man, this is really not a good time for this. You know? There's better times for this. He says, I didn't tell you that we're going to go under. I said, we're going to go over. And it was this exact same scripture that he gave me. You have little faith. It's not presumption. You did pray about it. You asked me, and I said, yes, do it. And so, okay, or I think I did anyway. But now in the middle, when it doesn't look like it's physically possible, now you're doubting when it was never physical. It's always been spiritual, you know. So I learned that lesson. So I got exhorted. It's hard to hear because I'm the pastor and I should know better by now, right? Still, I think more of a feeling of responsibility. Do I really want to, you know, and, and what was encouraging to me as I was listening to Pastor Chuck and he was saying when they first bought their building after they got out of the tent and they had a debt load, you know, and um, the first payments were coming due and it wasn't there. And he says, oh God, what have I done to these people? That was his heart. Not a, not a foolish thing, not a thing like that. And it was just a matter of what have I done to these people? And I think that's, it's not that I don't think God can do it. It's just uh, I don't want to do that to people. I don't want to put the burden, you know. But it's not me. And it wasn't Chuck at that time. It was God's idea. And so that's what I have to remember. It's God's idea, not mine. So he exhorts. And if you have that gift of exhortation, then do it. He who gives with liberality. In other words, if you're, gonna, if you're a giver, if you're able to do that, if that's built into you and that's a gift that you have, then do it liberally. Don't hide that gift, especially after what I just said, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Not really. Um, but that is a gift. Some people have a hard time with that. And, you know, normally I don't like that. And I'd, like to, I'd, I'd love for everybody to have that gift to be able to give liberally to not be a penny pincher or, a, or whatever, but that's, that's important in the ministry too. Someone who counts costs and is careful, that's very important, so don't get me wrong. But there are some people that just do not understand the value of money, and they don't care, and they just give it. I love that. 
That's a great gift. My father has that gift. He understands the value of money. He was a banker. He was a loan officer. He's owned a business. So he understands that he's not foolish, but he could care less about it. You know, if it's in his pocket, it can go to anybody at any time. You never knew what would happen when you were with my dad. And so I learned that from him. And um, I try to do that too. And I, I don't know the value of money. That's my problem. I just, whatever. <laughs> it gets me into trouble a lot of times. Um, but it's a wonderful gift to have. A gift to, if you have the gift of giving, to do it with liberality. He who, he who leads, do it with diligence. You're a faithful leader, not a sporadic one. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. That's a tough one. See, we're called to show mercy because blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy, right? We know that. So if I'm going to get mercy, I better give it. But it's a whole different thing what he's talking about here. He's talking about giving mercy. What's mercy? What's the difference between mercy and grace? Does anybody remember? Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Mercy is not giving something to somebody that they do deserve, okay? But then to do that with cheerfulness. In other words, I hope my wife knows what I didn't do, even though she deserved it. I'm just going to overlook that fault of his or hers. I hope she knows that. That's not doing it right. That's not doing it with cheerfulness. Doing it with cheerfulness is such a way I'm excited to give mercy. It brings joy to my heart to give mercy. When I understood this, because I don't have this gift, but I'm applying it to my life and I'm using it, there is such freedom. When I know, I don't know how, it's, how else to explain it, but I have permission from God to not impute to other people what I think they deserve. I don't have to do that. Somehow or longer, I grew up thinking, and it wasn't my parents doing it, it was my own thinking, that I need to give back what I got from them. I need to make it even. I need to make it right. That's my responsibility. I felt like I deserved it. I have the opportunity. And so I would do that. I'd make sure everything was even. You do that, I do this. You cut me off, stand by because I'm speeding up and I'm going to get right in front of you. I'm going to lock up my brakes in front of you. It's coming. Plan on it. And I live my life that way in every aspect until I got this and I read this to give mercy with cheerfulness. I don't have to follow that guy. I don't have to chase him down. I don't have to get in front of him. I don't have to lock up my brakes. I can just let it go and be better for it and be freed up in my heart because I don't know if you've ever experienced that, poor, that, that, that feeling before where you feel like you need to get him back. You focus on it. You dwell on it. And then you are miserable until it's accomplished. And even after it's accomplished, there is still rage inside of you and anger. It's a horrible experience. And when God showed me this, give mercy and give it with cheerfulness. I can just go on to high V like it never happened. I don't know how their world is or what their life's like, but that's, I just go on to high V like it never happened to me. Oh, you wimpy milk toast. Satan whispers in my ear, you spineless, less of a man. I had this all going on. It's like, no, I have permission to not, I don't have to chase him down. I don't have to do anything about it. You know, to give mercy with cheerfulness. My, my, my Savior did that to me. My Savior gave me mercy, and he did it with cheerfulness. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Thank you. You know, what a great example we have. Now, he moves on from these gifts that all of us have. Use them according to your faith. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. That's just a rapid fire list, isn't it? You can see Paul's excited. I try to read it that way. Love without hypocrisy. Oh, he wanted to see the church be like that because he had grown up in a religious system that wasn't like that. They loved with hypocrisy. Abhor what's evil. Don't wink at it. Don't smile. Don't uh, be friendly with it. Don't be excited by it. Even though you'd never do that, it's kind of interesting to think about and to watch. You know, Abhor that. Cling to what is good. And you know what? It takes clinging. Remember what good is. Good is godly. Good is perfect. Good is what Jesus is. Cling to that. 
Be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love. Just being kind. That's probably the hardest thing in a marriage, to be honest with you. You get used to each other. Your roommates, your soulmates, you're the other half. We know all that. But it's just, you forget to be kind. I'm more polite to the person walking into Casey's behind me and I hold the door open for him. When now, when my wife's following me, I just kind of open, I give it a good hard shove for her now so that she can get in behind me and won't hit her on the way in. I don't ever do that. I always hold the door for Jenny. I do. But I see it. Don't you see it? Haven't you ever seen that? I used to open the door for. Now I get in first and I reach across. And I might, if I can reach it, you know, if the belt will let me get over there, I swing it open for her. Uh-uh, uh-uh. We forget just to be kind. Be kindly affectionate to one another. And that's not just for your wife. Not, you know what? But it's easy to forget those closest to you. Of course I greet everybody at the door when they come into church. Of course I do all that. But do I do that for my wife? Am I, do I smile when I say it? Or do I come in the door and say, hey, hey. How's your day? Fine. How's your day? Fine. I wouldn't do that to anybody else. You know, be kindly, affectionate to one another. with Brotherly love. They're not talking about eros. They're not talking about anything romantic. With brotherly love, be kindly, affectionate to one another. I'm very careful about how I treat the ladies at church. I try to be anyway. But sometimes I get that urge to maybe put my hand on your shoulder and say, you know, not to get too clingy and it's kind of creepy when he hugs me like that because I want you to know that I love you like a sister but I'm not a threat at the same time and finding that balance is difficult you know but sometimes like when I saw you I put my hand on your shoulder and said hi but that was you know I just felt like maybe that's a good thing to do kindly affectionate with brotherly love and making sure that's felt so they understand there's no hidden thing going on there you know, we need to be careful about that, of course. But showing that brotherly love to one another. But I'll also do that to the guys too. Toby or somebody else. I'll put your hand, I'll put my hand on your shoulder. That's because I know, I know that I breeze through this place quickly and I'm moving around and talking to different people and going and sometimes I'm not making eye contact like I should. I'm not talking and listening to your whole story like I should. But I don't want you to think I don't love you, so I'll do that just to make sure you know that I, I know you're here and I know that you're here to hear God's word and I love you and I want you to know that. It's important to take that effort and make that time. Not lagging. Okay, in honor, giving preference to one another. In other words, you consider the other higher than yourself. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Some people think that there are cliques in our church. Kind of is. But it's not something we designed. Some people are here constantly serving God. And you know what? They're closer. They're here a lot. They see each other a lot. They're spending a lot of time. They're serving the Lord together, serving the people of this fellowship together. So they're a little closer than everybody else. It's not that you're an outsider. You just have to be an insider. You've got to decide to do it and be there more often. I think the Sunday school teachers probably have a closer fellowship with each other than they do with a lot of the folks that they're breeze in at 9.05 and breeze out as soon as the service is over, you know? And that happens when you serve together, when you're serving God together. There's a closeness that takes place. There's a new couple that comes on Sunday. Or Sunday, They're not here right now. They live in Albany. I'm using them as an example, and they're not here. It's not fair. But as soon as they showed up, they said, is there anything we can do? We said, well, you can clean windows. That's kind of our go-to. We can clean windows. We don't know who you are. We don't know exactly where you stand. We don't know what you believe doctrinally. We're not going to give you any kids to teach yet. But it's safe to let you clean a window, and boy, they do it. Every Sunday they get up, and you'll watch them. They'll go grab the stuff, and they go, and they clean the windows, you know, kind of thing. They're doing what they need to do. They're serving God. And they're not serving us necessarily. I mean, they are. They're serving you. They love you, and they want you to have clear glass to look out and all. But they're serving God, and they're, they're doing their part. And it's beautiful to see. So they serve the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. That's the hard thing. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. You want to be in prayer constantly and continually and, and, and regularly, I guess is what he's getting at there. And distributing to the needs of the saints 
given to hospitality. Interesting, he doesn't say distributing to the needs of the world. He doesn't. He says, make sure you're distributing to the needs of the saints. It's hard for me sometimes when I get a call and say, does your church help with electric bills? I said, well, we do, but doesn't your pastor, doesn't your church help with electric bills? Well, we don't go to church. But you want the benefits of a community without the obligation of worshiping a God. And so I say, no, you know, we don't. We help those that are coming to our church and those who are in need and are seeking God and all that. And they're offended by that. And I understand that. I can see why they're offended because they don't understand. They're of the world. I say, but you know what? Come to church. Let us meet you. Let us know who you are. Love to get you know you. And you know what? Your need probably isn't electricity. You probably you have a need for Jesus. I try to explain that to them on the phone, but that's not what they want. They just want the money. And they'll quickly go to the next person on the list in the yellow pages and go through all the churches. I pay attention to these kind of scriptures. Are we making sure the saints are taken care of? We don't pool our resources and give it to the world. We pool our resources and we make sure the church is taken care of. And of course, we evangelize. We want to bring them in. But people need to know their need for Jesus. And honestly, if we keep giving them money without the need for Jesus being met, we're not doing them any good. We're not meeting their needs. But Paul writes that. Make sure you're distributing to the needs of the saints. And are you given to hospitality? Is that your default? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Be careful about that. Obviously, this all has to do with humility behaving like a Christian, look like a son of God, look like a daughter of God. And to bless those who persecute you, not easy. Bless those and do not curse. He knows that they have a problem with that. He knows that we would have a problem with that. And so he writes it down for us. It's an exhortation. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I don't have to make those who are weeping feel better. I'm not called to that. I'm here to give them hope. I'm here to give them God's word, but I'm also here to be sorrowful with them. If they're shaking their fist at God, I don't stand next to them and shake my fist with them. That's not what he means. But he does mean feel what they're feeling. Be that close to them. Be of the same mind toward one another. Um, Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Be satisfied. You know, being content with your gift, I think, is important. What has God given you to do? What is your gift? And then be content and then use it according to your faith. Don't be bummed out that that's the gift he gave you, you know, like on Christmas. I've gotten a lot of gifts on Christmas that my parents knew I would like better than what I've asked for. And I didn't think they were right at the time. I'd open it up and say, you're kidding me, a science electrical kit? That's way better than a mini bike, you know. But it was winter, and it was snowy, and I'd never be able to ride the new bike, not a mini bike, but a regular bike. And I'd have to wait till spring for that to ride, but on Christmas Day, how lame is it to open up a present that you can't use? Here's your new bike. You have to wait four months. In Sioux City, Iowa, you've got to wait four months because it's cold and snowy. Here's this science kit which was awesome, laying on the floor at Christmas time when all the adults wouldn't stop talking. That's all they wanted to do was talk. And here I had this science kit, and I was making lie detectors. How cool is that? Love detectors. I think it was the same thing. I think I moved one thing, but that is a really cool thing. And, of course, I'd go around saying, touch this. You're a liar. And it, you know, I'd do that to all my relatives as i go. It was great. My parents probably wish they hadn't given that to me, but what I thought was a lame gift was really great. And God has given us these gifts according to his will, not according to our will. In fact, he elaborates that on 1 Corinthians, says that's the manifestation of these gifts in Corinthians. But he shows that these are gifts given for you to use, but earnestly desire the best gifts, but always leaving that open to God, the Father, who knows what we need to give them to us and then be content with those things. Repay no one evil for evil, verse 17 
have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. It's not always possible, but as far as you're concerned, you live peaceably. You're kind to them, you smile at them, you wave at them. And sometimes you realize maybe it's best to just stay out of the way sometimes. I can pick up on those signals too. It's like, okay, you don't want to talk to me, that's fine. I understand that. I don't want to be in your face, you know, kind of thing. So you let it go. And you live peaceably as much as you can, as much as depends on you. I don't want to bring conflict, I want to bring peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You want to do that. And so you try to make peace. Beloved. There's that position again. Don't forget who you are, he says. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Don't take that from God. Sometimes I have a twisted view of that scripture. I mean, I could do that to them, but if God got a hold of them, it'd be way better. And that's not what he's getting at. He's not saying, let me handle it. I got your back, J.D. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He says, give room. Let me do what I want to do, when I want to do it, if I want to do it. Not, I've got something way better planned for that person, which is how I look at that sometimes, or have in the past. No, vengeance is mine. In other words, it's against me. When David wrote, you and you alone have I sinned against, O Lord, is the strangest verse because he didn't just sin against God. He killed Uriah. He got Bathsheba in trouble. The baby died. It was a horrible mess. And then he writes at the end of it, you and you alone have I sinned against. He understood something better than I do. That's why he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The problem isn't with you, the problem is with me. You're my son. What they've done to you, they've done to me. And I'll step in if necessary. Or if I'm done. Or if whatever, let it be mine though. It's mine. It's not yours to do. That's what Paul started off with. Let your life be a living sacrifice. I mean, if anybody wanted to do vengeance at the right time, it would have been right before the cross, wouldn't it? So you're going to beat me, you're going to whip me, and now you're going to nail me to a cross. I don't think so. And he could have stepped in at that time. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I am the Lord. So here it comes. But he didn't. It wasn't the right time. It didn't accomplish the mission, and so he held off. And that's why he says, don't let your mind get to that place where you want to bring vengeance that you're not pleased when your brother or sister falls or your enemy falls. Don't get to that place in your heart. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And you know what? He's hoping that he doesn't have to. He's hoping that we don't go to hell. He doesn't desire any man to be lost. He wants all men to be saved. I'm looking for God to really get them, and boy, they're going to suffer when they die, and that's not how God thinks. God's thinking, no, they're still alive. There's still breath. There's still hope for them to receive my grace and mercy. That's what he says. Vengeance is mine. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Really? If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Oh, there's where it gets good as far as I'm concerned. I'm frying him by doing this to him. It's eating him up inside that I'm being so nice. That's not what he's saying. The heaps of coal has an old tradition. When their fire would go out, they go to the neighbor's house. And instead of getting a cup of sugar or milk, they get some coals from the fire to get theirs going again. So it's actually another good deed. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you heap coals and his fire on his head. Jenny said something really difficult. I hate it when she talks sometimes. It's a good thing. No, we completely agreed on it. But she says, you know, the world just needs to experience grace before they can give out grace. So that's true. She was talking about someone that she saw at the park down in St. Joe with Bo and the girls, and this mom was just screaming at this 10-year-old for dropping the peach, just screaming at her. And she said, can you, and one of the girls saw that and said, can you imagine growing up with that, that constant yelling, what kind of, what that would do to your stomach, the, the, the feeling you would have inside constantly, always being on pins and needles and edge and all that. 
and they experience that whole scenario, comparing it obviously to the love and the grace that God's given us, and that's why our family is the way it is, and we're so happy that we live in that kind of environment, that it's not screaming and yelling ever. And that's when she said it. She goes, some people just need to, you know, see, my thought was, boy, someone needs to tell that mom. Someone needs to teach that mom. That's, that's how I go right away. Someone needs to, you know. And Jenny goes, you know, they just need to experience grace before they can give it. Well, of course, that's the right answer. Being gracious and kind to that woman. And once that woman experienced maybe that grace and that forgiveness and that mercy, that all of a sudden she would maybe give it to her daughter. Good stuff. That's what he's saying here. Feed the enemy who's hungry. Give them a drink to those who are thirsty. For in so doing, you've helped them to light the fire in their own home, is the idea. Not that they're going to suffer greatly. (laughs) That is how you really get them. Uh -uh. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're in that battle, aren't we? Everybody can feel it. Anytime you watch the news, anytime you look at social media, whatever you're doing, you can feel that battle raging. And you can see, and we need to understand as Christian, what's the real battle here? The battle is between good and evil. It has nothing to do with right or left, liberal or conservative, Republican or Democrat. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's between good and evil is what we're witnessing. We saw two people, two groups on two different sides being completely wrong being completely evil to one another. That's the battle. And God warns the Christian, warns the church, do not, Romans, be overcome by evil because it will try to overcome you. And you can feel it overcome you at times. Don't. But overcome evil with good. Ben Carson had a wonderful exhortation. He goes, you know what I'm going to do tomorrow? I'm going to smile to more people. I'm going to shake hands and look them in the eye more. I'm going to give them preference over myself. He did this wonderful little little snippet. I don't know what to call it. It wasn't even an article. It wasn't even a paragraph. But it was just enough to get you thinking the right way. That's what I'm going to do tomorrow, he said. What are you going to do tomorrow? There goes Ben again, nailing it. Neurosurgeon that he is. Brilliant man that he is. I'm going to overcome evil by being good. That's what we're called to do as a church. Use those gifts. Understand what we're up against. Keep our minds right. We just got the, the plumb bob or the plumb line held up to us tonight. And I found myself leaning a little one way or the other. I'm not going to tell you which. But not going straight. And God just showed me, here's where you're supposed to be. That'd be a great thing to hang up in the church, wouldn't it? Just a plumb line someplace. And everybody walks by it and looks at it and says, eh little leaning, aren't I? Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your plumb line. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's so gentle but so powerful in its ability to exhort, encourage, give us hope, but also bring us low or lift us up. It gives us exactly what we need. And that's why you said, behold, I've come in the volume of the book that the whole volume speaks of you. Lord, we pray as we've gone through the Bible study tonight, we've got a lot of facts and we've got a lot of your word, but it's only alive by your spirit. It's the difference between a dead body and a living body. And there is a great difference. It still represents and looks like the person, but when it's animated with life, it's so much better. God, I want my walk with you and I want your word to be that way. It's alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not dead. It's not data. It's not to be absorbed and to be memorized necessarily. It's to be experienced and allowed to have the life that it has in us. So God, I pray that your word would be alive in us. That Jesus, you would be alive in us. And be able to move and act freely like you'd like to. We pray that we represent you well to this world because positionally, we're going to heaven. We're there. It's been done. You've gone ahead of us and prepared a place for us. Our position is perfect and can't be improved upon. But until we get there, God, Paul here has encouraged us in chapter 12 to be imitators of you, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. 
So Lord, help us to be those thermostats this week around us, to change the temperature, to be the peacemakers, to be those offering mercy with cheerfulness, to be liberal givers, Lord. And do it all according to our faith. Thank you, God, for tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.